Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll pick up where we left off last week, as we typically do. And except this week we're going to work through a few more verses than we typically do. We're going to work verses 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. So we're going to be here for about four hours to work through those verses. Hopefully not. An hour of verse, and you won't lose out on anything, and we'll be good. <coughs> so hopefully on your iPhone you can delay your crockpot meal until uh, it's timer to wait. Uh, we're going to be here, and then uh, many of you know my and Rusty's good friend John Pope will be preaching for you all verse 25 next Sunday. I've asked him to continue on in Ephesians for us, and he'll preach 25, um, which will kind of be the very beginning of some very practical outworkings of what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you guys notice this, <clears throat> just as a real quick explanation, we spend lots of times talking about two different main categories of thoughts, if you will, here. One is Thinking about principles and theology and doctrine and kind of the basis of life and existence. And then the other thing we talk about is life and existence, right? Those are kind of the two categories. Like how, how do we live life? How do we exist? What is it we're to do? There's two very different categories. We spend a lot of time in this church spending talking about the doctrine and the principles and the theology of it and and, and that's without, like, that's intentionally. Uh, for one, the scriptures spend a lot of time doing that. Um, but it's also kind of how we get at the root of, of the other stuff, and that is how we actually live. So, I just want to remind you here, again, this today, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about theology and doctrine, what we are to believe. Um, but by God's wonderful grace, as we move into next week and beyond, we're going to spend even more time concentrating on very practically how then do we now live in light of these truths that we know about God, and about life, about His creation, about us. So you need to kind of see today's sermon as a little bit of a transition. So we're going to kind of transition now in the text, I, I, I will say this, each week, let me say this real quick, each week as we talk about doctrines and principles and theology and that kind of thing, we, we, we always try to work through the practical of how do we live in light of that, particularly we do that in house gathering. Um, but in the preaching side of things, we tend to focus on the doctrine, the theology of it. Well now, you're going to see kind of this transition into the rest of Ephesians is going to be very heavy on how do we now live in light of what we've learned. So just as a continued reminder, you need to, as we work through the rest of Ephesians, Rusty and I will try and help us do this, but you need to put forth effort to continue reviewing Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and particularly the first half of 4. Because everything we're going to talk about in the rest of 4, 5, and 6 is all very much in light of Chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the first part of 4. So make sure you keep that in mind. So see today is kind of a, a little bit of a transition here 
Um, and really, the past number of weeks have been a little bit of a transition. But this is going to kind of be the final step in that, because next week is going to be put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That's very practical. That's very, very practical. And that's where we're going to settle. But why? Why do we do that? What's the reason for that? That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. Okay, with that said, I want to start with this question. How did you learn Christ? I'll start with that question. I don't typically like to start with questions in a sermon, but let's start with that question. How did you learn Christ? Now let me define what I mean by how did you. I didn't mean like, how did you come upon the knowledge of Jesus? I'm not talking about what VBS instructor convinced you that heaven was a better place than hell. That's all I'm talking about. Talking about how did you learn Christ? In what manner did you learn Christ? What, and what I'm thinking particularly, this is what Paul's thinking, is the learning of Christ and meaning like its application and its role in your life. How did you learn what it meant to know, love, follow Jesus? What was that? What, how did you learn Christ? All of us come from very different perspectives, very different answers to this. Because some of this is going to be based upon your perspective and interpretation of what was being spoken to you or what you were reading. And some of this is just indeed the actual speaking to us and the actual things we were reading were saying different things to us. So we all have different experiences, whether that's what was being shown to us or it's how we were receiving it. We're all going to answer this question very differently. But how did you learn Christ is the question. That seems to be Paul's big point here in these next few verses. Speaking about how the Ephesians learned Christ. Again, this is not who did you learn it from. This is not what denomination taught you or what apostle gave you this information. But what was the way in which you learned like this Christ and his, his role in your life and your role now in being in Him. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does that look like? That's the question we're trying to answer. So let me make some observations. I'm afraid that majority of us in this room are still struggling with learning Christ incorrectly. What do I mean by that? I mean by that is that in the past... You have learned Christ a certain way. So the way that that looks and understanding Jesus and his role in your life has looked at least partially incorrect and you're still struggling to overcome that, to correct that. Let me make an observation pertaining to that observation. Many years of poor education in the gospel coupled with less than stellar effort to fix it and what you find is the lackluster walk with Jesus that many of us experience every day. So both poor education in it and less than stellar effort to fix it equals a less than brilliant, joyful display of following Jesus today. Another observation. Many of us learned Christ in such a way that he just simply became another polished idol on your heart's mantle. 
You have this idol that you worship, and you have this idol, so maybe it's success and career, and, and this is children, and this is comfort, and this is control, you know, got on the, the idols, and then Jesus, and you just learn to just kind of put Jesus on there, and he was the one you go to when these other things aren't working out. He became a God simply placed next to your long list of gods. That was the manner in which you learned Jesus. That he just can kind of sit up there next to these others. <clears throat> or some maybe even have remained in darkness. Learning about Christ, the knowledge of Christ, but not actually learning Christ. What I mean by that is that you learned who Jesus is, but never learned him in such a way that he became Lord. And, and here's the deal. There is no... Um, we, we try to draw this distinction in Christianity today. Well, you, I get saved and then later make Him Lord of your life. No, He's not your Savior until He's the Lord of your life. It's just the, the growing and increasing measure of which He is Lord of your life is something that happens in sanctification. But it's not a surrender to His saving work and then surrender to His Lordship work later. There's a, there's things are similar, they go together. So what I'm saying is that for some of you, learned who Jesus was, but didn't actually learn who he was in here, where your life then began to follow him. And I think that's a dangerous place to be, where we would know of someone, but not really know him. I want to flesh that out a little bit more later. See, the implication of Paul's talk here is that there is a God-sized change that takes place upon learning Christ correctly. You know what I'm saying? There's a God-sized change, a change in your life that can only be explained by a holy, gracious, merciful God when you actually learn Christ correctly. <clears throat> Another observation, maybe you learned Christ only in a justifying sense. What do I mean by that? I mean, like you, the way you learned Christ was, I need Jesus to make me justified before the Father, before God, to make me holy, to cleanse me my sin, to give me my ticket to heaven. <clears throat> I would say that that's an incorrect learning of Jesus, and I think Paul would agree. I would encourage you with this kind of concluding thought to these observations that if you are not seeking daily regularly the instructing word of the father that you're at very least struggling to learn Christ correctly okay here's what I mean by that to learn Christ correctly as we're going to talk about today, is going to necessitate the regular seeking of the instructing tradition of Jesus Christ as it's, per, as it's represented in His Word. So if you do not spend time regularly in the Word, that's evidence of you learning Christ incorrectly. Right? For, for you, as this is for myself, it's I don't, don't, don't let me unintentionally create a divide there. 
what's happening is that largely your learning of Jesus is half of the story, not the other half. And that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. Is that you didn't learn about Jesus just as your justifier, but you learned about him as the one who sanctifies you too. Right? Don't let too much of the cat out of the bag. Cats need to stay in the bag, right? I've said that before. <clears throat> Toss them in the river. But, but this cat will let out of the bag as we go. Yeah, we get, a, we get applause for that one, right? <laughs> Sorry, you cat lovers. <clears throat> Here, we need to understand that, I, I just want to give you, because I think, here, here's the deal, I, I think we don't recognize the, like, that, that the reason that many of us struggle to pick up our scriptures each day myself included, is because we still struggle with this very poor learning of Jesus Christ. And, and I hope to flesh that out. I hope that you walk away today going, huh, let, let this help fix my learning of Jesus, and then that propel you into a lifelong seeking of his instruction and, li- instruction and living practically in light of this Christ that you have learned. So, with that said, as we walk into this passage, I want to remind us of what Rusty said last week in just a sentence or two. So we just talked about these people living out their ignorance of the gospel. Living out, living out their ignorance. So all of this deceitfulness and, and evil desire and all these things is coming out of this ignorance, this, un, this not knowing of the gospel. Living evil, living secluded living selfish lives, dead, think back to chapter 2, dead in their trespasses and sins. They were without hope. This is the people that we were just talking about. And with that, let's read verse 20 through 24. And Paul says, to that, (coughs) but this, referring to what we just talked about, this ignorance and selfish living and dead in our trespasses and sins and, and deceitful desires, but this, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Notice he says Jesus here too, not Christ. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires... And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we work through these words this morning that you would give me clarity to speak these truths. That you would give our hearts and minds clarity and understanding. And then you would, Father, give us unction to carry out and live in light of these truths. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we go. Paul is very emphatic about Christian versus non-Christian living. Okay? You have to set that in your mind right now. Paul is going to be, and is in this passage as well, very emphatic about a way a Christian is to live and a way a non-Christian indeed does live. 
Like the abrupt beginning of this verse stresses the contrast between Christian and non-Christian existence. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way you learned Him. Paul is driving this very emphatic distinction between these two things. He's beginning right here. And we're reminded here of what we were taught concerning Christ. That's what he's getting ready to do. He's getting ready to remind them. But he's only four, verse, four chapters in. And he's reminding them of what they learned concerning Christ. And what he's referring to here is kind of two pieces. One is the initial proclamation of the gospel. You did not learn this Christ of deceitfulness and ignorance. Instead, you're not ignorant. You learned through the initial proclamation that Jesus Christ is the way to heaven, the way to reconciliation, that being in Him is the only way to find redemption. The second part, he is reminding us of that this learning of Christ, and that is concerning subsequent instruction, namely, how we now live in light of this first piece, the proclamation and living and loving of the gospel. So think of it in two parts. Again, the initial proclamation of the gospel. We learned that, we were taught that concerning Christ, he says. And then subsequent instruction concerning Christ. Those are the two things that Paul's going to go after. Now this is over and against hardness, ignorance, depravity of the pagan world to which they once belonged. Right. So this is the distinction he's drawing. You were once a part of this group, but you're no longer a part of this group. And here's why. You were taught about Jesus and the gospel and salvation, initial salvation, and you were taught about how to work out that salvation as well. But notice here, just I want to let a little bit of a, uh, 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 here's something else that's going to come later, because I want this in the back of your mind, is notice that Paul, notice the way Paul is talking about sin and living. He's not talking about sin in the way that you and I are likely accustomed to talking about sin, particularly probably in the past. He's talking about the root of sin, not the fruit of sin. Talk about this deceitfulness, this, this ignorance, these desires. He's talking about sin in a different way. So I want you to see that this is over and against the way you were taught Christ is over and against hardness, ignorance, depravity, and so on. The other thing I want to point out to you here is that the basis of everyone's life has not been changed. Only believers. This is something to, to, to keep in mind here. Paul is not talking about the way the world learned Christ. He's talking about you believers. This is how you learned Christ. And only those people's lives, the basis of their lives has been changed. I mean, this, so this has huge implications. I don't want your mind to rest here the, the whole time because I, I don't want you to miss the applications and implications of this for your own life. But there are things for you to think about concerning this text when it comes to leading other people to Jesus Christ. 
thinking about what's going on in their heart and what's going on in their mind. And how, how can you help them learn Christ correctly? How do you present Christ correctly? Right? We tend to present Christ as just simply a means to heaven. Like when we think about evangelism, we think about him as a means to heaven. Look at like Luke, I think it's Luke 14. How does Jesus present himself to the, to the crowd, right? He says consider the cost. What's he talking about there? He's not talking about the cost of, of initial salvation. He's talking about the cost of now living in light of that salvation. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about what's it going to cost you? And he's telling onlookers to consider the cost before following him. So I think we have something to learn here. When we think about salvation, we think about presenting the gospel to our kids. Hey, child, this is what's going to cost you. Consider the cost. Not just, hey, would you rather go to heaven or hell? I, I don't think anyone in here is doing that, but, but even more so than even not asking that question, but thinking, child, consider these things. Consider these things. And that's going to be age appropriate. But consider these things. So I just want you to see there's implications for this beyond even just ourselves. But I want us to think in terms of Christ and the body and us. Paul's language, the last comment I'll make here before the first big point, is that Paul's language is like that of a school here. That's kind of what he's talking about. Is this not the way you learned, you were, not the way you were schooled in Christ. I don't mean that in a bad way. Oh, I schooled you, right? Have you heard that phrase? I schooled him. That, that's what he's talking about. Like, how were you schooled? How were you educated concerning Jesus Christ? Yeah, it's a learning institution. Being a follower of Jesus Christ requires learning Him. So first thought is this. You must learn Christ correctly. If it wasn't apparent where we were going, it is now. You must learn Christ correctly. It would just be I know. I guess uh, here's the, here's the deal. I, I, I'm laughing because as I work through so much of this, I'm like, so many things on repeat. But that's because we need to hear these things week after week after week after week. Ephesians 4 verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now here's Paul's point. Here's Paul's point. It's not that you and I have not simply welcomed Christ into our lives, but that we have received traditional instruction concerning Him. What do I mean by that? Let's look at Colossians 2, verse 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So notice there's this receiving of Jesus, and then now there's this walking in Jesus. The walking in Jesus is the traditional instruction concerning Jesus. Meaning, how do we walk in Him? What does His life look like beyond just simply, not making light of, but just simply His redeeming work on the cross and making us right before God? What does it mean now to live in light of that and walk in Him? It's interesting, just to to make a side note here, that when the Bible in the New Testament talks about those who are Christians, they don't refer, obviously, to them as Christians at this point, or as believers, or as the redeemed, necessarily. The primary way that they're referred to is those who are in Him. 
Those who are in Christ. Those who are in Jesus the Christ. Those who are in Him. So it has something to do with this walking in Him. Uh, that's just a side note. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. What's he doing? He's talking about you received Jesus and now you're being rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. This is all talking about now walking in Jesus. So Paul's point here in verse 20 of Ephesians is not that you simply welcome Jesus into your life but that now we live in light of the traditional instruction that you heard concerning Jesus. I want to point out to you here that he says, Indeed, you have learned. Paul, Paul's point is not a question of, well, did you learn Jesus this way? No, what he's saying is, you were taught Jesus this way. He's telling the Ephesians, you learned him this way, don't live this way. He's reminding them of what they were taught and what they learned. And by God's grace, I, I believe that according to this passage, that you're being taught Christ correctly here. I believe I can say that with confidence. With humility and confidence, I believe I can say, you have learned Christ correctly. You've learned Him correctly. You did not learn Christ in a different way than what Paul's talking about here. So, Paul's point here is not that you have simply welcomed Christ and heard the initial proclamation of Jesus, but that you have also received traditional instruction in his life and, and how he lived and how you now ought to live in light of that. Now, let's look at the rest of this verse, getting in verse 21. Christ, of course, is the subject of the teaching. Christ should always be the subject of Bible teaching. But he says here, he says, assuming that you have heard about him. What's he talking about there? This draws attention to the initial proclamation of Jesus and, and the good news of the gospel of restoration of sinners to God through the blood of Jesus, paying the price for their sins. That's the initial proclamation and receiving. That's what he's talking about, that you hear about him. So this draws attention to the initial response to Christ. Learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person, as the living, ruling Son of God. Okay? That's what he's talking about, this hearing about Him. Then he says, and we're taught in Him. And I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, for many of us, the way we learned Christ was, you could read this passage going this way, but this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him as the truth is in Jesus. And this second part here, and we're taught in Him, is the part of your learning Jesus that's incorrect. It's missing. It's gone. Or even that, you might were taught concerning Jesus, but you were taught how to walk in Jesus apart from the first part of Jesus. So, it, let me... Let me I don't want to go down, this is a whole other sermon, but my goodness, I have to explain it here. Taught in Jesus, apart from taught about Jesus, just equals legalistic living. So it means you're taught how to live apart from the gospel, it's just how to earn your own righteousness apart from Jesus. So you can't have one without the other. 
Because he told to be taught about Jesus, to believe the gospel for initial salvation without being taught in Jesus and how the two connect is incorrect learning of the gospel. And many of us have either one part without the other or we, don't, or we might have both parts and they're not connected right. So how do I learn to walk in Jesus as it's connected back to who I am in Jesus? That starts us going down the path of how do we get at learning Christ correctly. So you must be taught in Him. This draws attention to the point of ongoing instruction. You're taught in Him. Being taught in Christ means being, here you go, shaped by His teaching. Shaped by His teaching. This ongoing being taught in Christ. When I was referring just a few moments ago to the traditional instruction concerning Christ, what I'm referring to is the teaching that would then shape your living. That would shape your tongue. That would shape your spending habits. That would shape your emotions. That would shape your joy. You see, to be taught in Him means we must be submitting to His rule of righteousness. To be taught, to be shaped by His teaching means we must be responding to His summons to standards and values. That our values are reshaped by the teaching concerning Him. And we must see another, if we are being shaped by His teaching, we must be seeing a distinct difference between our lives and that of the pagan world around us. One of the ways we learn Christ incorrectly is the whole, well, I can just polish the outside of the bowl, and as long as the outside of the bowl looks different than the world around me, then I must be getting at this right. <coughs> Sermon on the Mount blows that one out of the water. I don't know how we miss that one in broad church culture, but Jesus is concerned about what's going on inside. He's concerned about what's motivating your actions, what's motivating your servitude, what's motivating these things, and that's what has to look different than the rest of the world. The fruit of, of that, those this workings in your heart will be apparent like will will be consistent with what's going on inside the bowl. So let me ask you this question. Where do you live? So to, thinking back to Rusty's sermon last week and the passage before, where do you live alienated from the life of God because of your ignorance? Right? So we're talking about being taught in him. How do we live in him? And it's a teaching educational thing that we then live in light of this teaching and educational thing. So now where do you live alienated from the life of God because of a lack of this teaching education? Let me give you a very practical example, and this kind of gets at the big picture here. But we often alienate ourselves from the life of God as we perpetuate ignorance by not studying the Scriptures. Now that's a very broad statement, but when we do not study the Scriptures, then we are perpetuating ignorance that results in alienation from God. I don't think we realize where that leads us to. 
And I was struck, I, I think the principle applies to reading of the scriptures as well, but something John Piper quoted, or someone quoted John Piper this past week that I read, said, you think that prayer gets in the way of your productivity. What you don't understand is that God can accomplish more in five minutes than you can accomplish in five years. Why would you not give yourself to prayer? Same principle with the scriptures. We see the scriptures as not productive, but productive for what? And what's of most value? Guys, it's not productive to go about our kingdom and being alienated from God. So how do we seek to not be alienated from God? We seek to dispel the ignorance. We seek to rid ourselves and to know this God. So, with that said, how distinct, then another question, how distinct is your life from the world around you? And how are you getting at that question? Like, meaning, like, how are you assessing that? How are you, uh, what are, what, at what level are you looking at? You just don't smoke, drink, you know, well, you know, smoke the right thing, drink the right, you know, you know, you know that. <laughs> how distinct is your world from the rest of the world around you? Right? Oh, you don't cuss? Awesome. I'll give you a cookie. So Christ, learning about him, being taught in him. Why? Why? Because the truth is in him. That's what Paul says. Why be taught of him and be taught in him? Because the truth is in him. The truth is nowhere else. The truth is in him. Why? Because he's the exact representation, the exact image of the Father. And he's given to us by the Father so that we could see the Father. He gives us a visible display of Himself so that we might see Him. But the truth, He says, the truth is in Him. So this, the truth as embodied in Jesus was the norm and is the norm by which the readers, we, have been instructed in the gospel tradition of Jesus Christ. He's the norm. He's the standard. He is the content of the instruction of the gospel tradition. Guys, and what he's saying is this is wholly at odds with the Gentile lifestyle that he showed us in verse 17, 18, and 19. That's one of ignorance and hardness and deceit and wrong desires and evilness and death. This is one of life. One of knowing, one of living the truth, one of eternal joy and gratitude. So is your life wholly at odds with the Gentile lifestyle? Would be a very quick practical application. Let me ask you this, is your joy throughout the day at odds with the former way of life? Is your joy, so I mean you can answer that however you want to. The level of your joy, the consistency of the joy, the source of your joy. Three different ways to answer that question like that. Is all of that at odds with the way the former life and the pagan world around you experiences joy? <clears throat> and some people I talk to, like one time I talked to them, they're joyful and just loving Jesus. Next time it's like the world's just you know, falling apart and crumbling. Like, no, the same God that should have been giving you joy here 
if you were looking in the right place, is this same God that's still alive now. What's changed? He's not. Your eyesight changed. Your heart's focus changed. So the truth that was in Christ, it's where we look, that's where we're taught in Him. So he says, as the truth is in Jesus, to break this part real quick, there is considerable stress in this passage on the truth. Throughout the entire section, learning the truth, growing in the truth, knowing the truth, the body of truth to which we should know and submit to. And what's he say here? That all of this truth that we've been talking about is all found in Jesus Christ. It's all found in Him. So all this, I mean, just go back, and, and well, we don't have time to now, but he says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, Lord of faith, one baptism, one God. Where is it at in there? Somewhere there's one, one truth, one hope, one faith, that, that part, right? One faith, this one truth. Back at the beginning of chapter 4, one truth, one faith, one body of knowledge, all of that is found in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's why, so that's why this, again, we're juxtaposing here with what was preached last week uh, in the passage there about this embodiment of deceit versus the embodiment of truth. The world embodies deceit, Jesus embodies the truth. And if we're in Christ, then we are people who are of the truth. We're not people who are of the world and of deceit. So that comes down to whether we're, that impacts speaking of truth, believing truth versus speaking lies, believing lies. We do this all the time. We're always struggling with that, and we will struggle with that the rest of our lives. But, Lord willing, our trajectory would be towards knowing, believing, resting in the truth. Why? Because the truth is in Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? The one you were, the one to whom the one who is proclaimed to you as the redeemer of your soul. That's the one in whom all truth resides. And you reside in him. Notice here Paul says Jesus. He just said this is not the way you learned Christ. And then now he says that the truth is in Jesus. I don't think Paul's just randomly choosing titles for for the Christ like we do. I mean, we, we kind of exchange Jesus, Lord, Christ, Savior, and we kind of refer to Him as those kind of willy-nilly, whatever kind of comes to mind when we speak of Him. He chooses Jesus here on purpose. Paul, I think, is em- emphasizing the historic person named Jesus, who is the embodiment of the truth. This is super important, right? This is the incarnate son of God who historically existed as a man and as a man embodied the truth. Think about how that's now important for you and I who are in Jesus as men and women, as human beings, to now embody the truth. Think about that. If it's just Christ, the exalted divine person of the Trinity embodying the truth, we go, of course. Why not? It's God. And then how does that translate to us? Oh, man. Well, I'm not God, so how am I going to live now in light of this? That's crazy. But the person, the man, Jesus Christ, historically existed and historically existed 
embodying the truth as he walked on the dirt that you and I walked and depended on the Holy Spirit that you and I depend on and read the same Old Testament that you and I can read today. He embodied the truth. The gospel tradition that we're taught was indeed the truth as it was lived out in Jesus. Got it? We see this. It's super important. Let's read. Verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So now we're going to work 22 through 24. So the picture of putting off and putting on a garment was very widespread in, in the ancient world. Just don't, you don't have to look extra biblical or extra biblically. You don't have to look outside the Bible. You can look inside the Bible. Go to the Old Testament. You see, I'm not going to go to these examples, but you see ideas of being clothed with righteousness, clothed with honor, clothed with salvation. What's interesting, though, is you never ever see it being referred to as clothed with a person. Clothed with a person. You're putting on a new person. You're always putting on salvation or things. Now you're talking about putting on a person. Uh, you're talking about, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. A person. It's interesting. I think part of what you see there is typology pointing us to the real, the anti-type, you th- the, what is happening here. You see this kind of examples and what that's leaning towards, and ultimately it's putting on this new person that's in Jesus Christ. I want to also talk about, just real quick, before we work through these kind of three uh, infinitives, if you know what the English language is, the infinitives. Uh, we're going to work through those in a second. I'm going to explain that in just a second. But what I want you to think through is this with me real quick. Imperatives versus indicatives. I'm going to be a little nerdy on you here, so just bear with me, okay? Imperatives versus indicatives. Okay? You follow me? Got that? Anyone you got that wrote down? Imperative and indicative. We're going to talk about those two things real quick. Guys, the content of the Christian instruction that they had been given and which is found in the person of Jesus is now about to be amplified, right? That instruction is going to be amplified. It's going to be made bigger. It's going to be made clearer. It's going to be given examples. It's going to give practical things and how this truth that's found in Jesus is to be lived out. So it's going to get bigger. I think, if, if, I'm understand, if I'm understanding these few verses here rightly, we, these are better understood, not as imperatives, but as indicatives. Let me say that. Let me say it a different way. should not be understood as imperatives, but as fundamental aspects of the gospel tradition that we have received. Okay? That these are indicatives. This putting off, be renewed in the Spirit, put on, are indicatives, first and foremost, not imperatives. Right? Now, I'm going to work through that, right? Because you're going, but it says put off, put on. What, what are you telling me? You're telling me it doesn't say that? Oh, well, kind of. 
I'm telling you, I'm telling you the, the intent here with Paul is, is a little different. Like, you need to dive in a little bit more. So they're better understood, not as imperatives, but as fundamental aspects of the gospel tradition that, that we have received. We need to understand that to become believers signifies a fundamental break with the past. A fundamental break with what's happened in the past. The former way of life. Now, at the same time, so think indicatives. This is indicating something of us. Those who are followers of Jesus, those who are in Christ, this is indicating something of us. That's what I mean by indicatives. At the same time, the context of what Paul is in is very uh, exhorting. Right? He is exhorting in this context. So the context, I think, helps us see that these three infinitives, to put off, to be renewed, to put on, have, uh, here, here's a nerdy word for you, implied imperatival force. What I mean by that? That they, they are giving us imperatives of something we are to do, but it's implied because of the context. So they have the force of saying, you need to go do this. But see, this is important because if we just walk into here in this verse, if you just pull this verse out of its context and you go to a brother or sister and say, you need to put off this sin, you need to put on this Christ to be renewed in your mind, if you don't understand those as first and foremost fundamental realities of that person's redemption, that they have already in the past by God put off the old self, are being renewed by God, and have put on the new self as a reality of the past, then you will be telling them and expecting them to live in self-righteousness and legalism. You won't have patience You'll be prideful and you'll lead them to pride. So you have to understand that this is first and foremost a God-ordained and finished reality of the past, an aspect of their salvation before we recognize it as something we now are to do, that we are to live, that we are to now live in light of. So, let me put that a little bit of a different way. So, it's implied that we are to do these things. Not in the sense that readers, that we, that the Ephesians are to repeat the event of putting off the old person and putting on the new, but instead, what we're being told here is to live out the implications of this mighty break with the Gentile world that God has done. We are now called to live out that mighty break with our past. See, here's the deal. You will never experience the joy, the success of overcoming sin and holiness until you understand the break with the past that God has done. 
And, and I would say it even works the other way in that when you understand just what God did in breaking you from your past and putting off this old self, putting on this new self, that if you don't understand that, that you will not be propelled towards holiness, a life of following God. I think a lot of times, guys, a lot of times our, our lack of effort and living out the gospel is because we're, we don't know what we're living in light of. It's always living in light of something else. Otherwise, you're just living in darkness or some light that you've manufactured. We live in light of someone else and what he did. So a lot of times we lack motivation, we lack effort to live out toward this, this tradition of Jesus Christ, this holiness, because we don't know what we're living in light of. We need to look back in order to move forward. And this is what Paul's doing here. He's doing both at the same time. Meaning, we don't physically put on the new self. That is a done reality. But we now live out the implications of the new self. All that to say this, this whole imperative, indicative thing is God did something in the past. He, he saved your butt, all right? He saved you from fire and hell and destruction and sin and death and joylessness and loss of satisfaction, loss of uh, the pursuit of fulfillment elsewhere that would only leave you empty. He did that, and now we live a certain way because of that. Now we live this out practically. So, with that said, and I have got like 10 minutes to do this, three realities of the gospel that we have learned and how we live in light of them. Three realities of the gospel that we have learned and how we live in light of those realities. Let me make a couple quick notes here. These are all packed together. You do not get one without the other, and you cannot pick and choose. This is a package deal. Put off, be renewed, put on. All three. You can't put on, as Rusty talked about last week, you can't put on unless you're putting off something. You're always fully clothed. Okay? It's just whether or not part of your garments are sinfulness and old man or are holiness and new man. But you've always fully clothed. First one of this, we must put off the old self and we must do it first. We must put off the old self and we must do it first. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Again, we're talking about learning Christ correctly. Learning Christ correctly. This is why even when we think about initial salvation and leading someone to the good news of Jesus Christ, it's not just receive Jesus and love Jesus. It's put off something else. It's repent, right? Repent and turn towards it. What are you seeing in the gospel? I, I, I mean, if there's anything that most of us know growing up, it's repent and place faith in Jesus. What are you talking about? Put off the old man and put on the new. Now, obviously, that's something God has to do, but put off the old man, repent, and put on your new garb of righteousness. I mean, think about that when you get to present the gospel to someone. You're not just giving them the, this, maybe this little religious idea. What are you doing? You're, you're showing them 
freedom from bondage to their old man in order to be clothed with the freedom and the garbs of Christ's righteousness. That's what you have to offer. That's what you have to offer your own soul daily. All right, we should continue. The former manner of life, let's look at this, the former manner of life is marked by the complete rule of sin. This is, I know this is not profound, but we need to keep this in mind. The old person here, as in Romans, you can go look at this later, Romans 6, Colossians 3, designates the, kind of the whole personality of a person when he is ruled by sin. The whole person. This old self is the whole person being ruled by sin. Every part of it. So when you look at someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, they're an old person, or that's their current person, and it's ruled by sin. Without exception. Look at Ephesians 2, 3. It talks about the, how it characterizes this as desires of the flesh. That the desires are purely and only evil. When we think about you and I, particularly if you were saved at a young age, understand that even at five, even at four, even at six, your desires were completely evil, and God rescued you from those desires. This is the old person. The old person was morally corrupt. My four-year-old body was morally corrupt. I was talking to someone, oh, well, they're a child, they're innocent. Listen, they're not innocent before God. This person This person, this old person, is in the process of decay and ruin that will finally end in death. You see that? That will finally and fully end in death. This manner of life was earmarked for destruction. Now, the cause of this disintegration of this old person is the harmful desires which charm you and I, or did you and I, into sin and error. These desires that move us towards and entice us towards sin and error. The reality of the gospel is that your old self has been crucified though. Right? This old man has met its destruction. You see that. This old man headed towards destruction has met its destruction ultimately and finally in the death of Jesus Christ when we are transitioned from darkness to light. Now the imperative is that we now live like the old man is dead. Right? But I mean, I think we can think in very practical ways that we live in such, in such a way that the old man's still living and running amok, right? We see him. But he's dead. How do we live in light of the fact that he's dead? Some of us let him reign and rule regularly in different areas of our lives. We let him, he's dead. We need to put off 
The old self, and I'm sorry, another thought here. We need to put off the old self at the depth of desires. Okay? At the depth of desires, we must put off the old self. You know, at worst, we simply try, referring back to last week, at worst, we simply try to put on the new man without first taking off the old man. But I'm afraid that even at best, most often, we simply try to put off the old self by putting off the fruit of our desires. That at best, we just try to put off the fruit of our desires instead of putting off the desires themselves. These desires lead to the destruction of the old man. And they will lead to your destruction too. And those are the warnings of, in, in Hebrews. They will lead to your destruction. You could discover one day, Jesus say, depart from me for I never knew you. It is foolish to let the old man play any role in our lives. It's just foolish. Next thought, these desires are birthed out of deceit. They're birthed out of lies. These desires which are generated by deceit, they stand in opposition to the truth of the gospel which Paul considers to be so essential to the growth of God's people. Because just like Adam and Eve, their desire was for God-like glory. And the lie was that God was keeping it from them. When in reality, they could never embody God-like glory. And God and His glory was theirs for their enjoyment already. But it was born out of this lie, this deceit, that they could actually obtain it. And that they didn't actually... They could obtain it in and of themselves and that they didn't already have it via experiencing it with God. So, these desires are born out of deceit. Next sub-point here. Talking about these imperatives. So, put off the old self. Next, seek renewal of the inner man. Seek renewal of the inner man. Verse 23, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. (coughs) First of all, he says be renewed. We need to understand here that the voice is a little different. What do I mean by voice? In, in Greek, there's different voices, not like, you know, voices in your head, but like different voices, okay? What I mean by that is active and passive. Those are the two voices we have in English. There's a third voice in Greek called middle. Middle voice is actually where you're actively doing something to yourself. That would be middle voice, okay? <clears throat> this is not middle voice. It's actually passive. We're not doing this to ourselves. This is something God does to us, to be renewed, God is the one who affects the ongoing work of renewing His people. 
However, the exhortation is still implied that we should continue to seek the renewal of the inner man. We saw this earlier on, how important the inner man is. What he's telling us here is to yield ourselves to God and His renewing of our inner person. To seek this, to avail ourselves to this. I mean, God's going to do it, period, because He's God and sovereign, and He's gracious to us. But we're to seek this, actively seek this. Seek what? God renewing our, the spirit of our minds. And then he says, in the second part of this, is the spirit of your minds. What is this? This is the sphere of this renewing work. The sphere of the renewing work is the person's innermost being. Your soul spirit, right? Your heart and mind, like the inner man. The implication here is this, that the pattern, the motivation, and the direction of our thinking needs to be changed. You pick up on that? That's what he's implying. And it needs to be, in an ongoing manner, renewed. What does that mean? That means regularly, daily, even maybe moment by moment, our minds are in desperate need of renewal. That the direction of our minds, the spirit of our minds, go in the wrong direction. I mean, you guys, I hope you all know what I'm talking about here, right? Like your mind just goes, you you know, you're loving and enjoying God and living out holiness, and all of a sudden, whoop, and your mind just goes in opposite direction. What needs to happen? Your mind needs renewed. Who can do that? God can. We know this. One of my prayers, first of all, is that my inner being would be so trained that it takes a lot for my mind to go to another direction. But the other prayer is that God would be quick in showing me that my mind has went another direction. That He'd be quick to pull it back. That he'd be quick to show me and remind me of the truths that I know. The deceit that I'm believing. Listen, our, our, the rule of our day, outside this church and even oftentimes inside this church and in our own lives, the king of our age is the emotions. The king of our age His feelings, they rule the day. Even in the church, truth often doesn't rule us. Our emotions do. Guys, emotions in and of themselves are not bad. But the truth is, is we need to engage our thinking here. That's what he's talking about. This renewing of your mind, the spirit of your mind, renewing this. And then out of that, then, can be birthed beautiful, free-flowing, right emotions. The truth is we need to engage our thinking. We need to constantly be seeking the renewal of our thinking. 
That's what he's implying here. So what is the pattern of your thinking? <clears throat> I mean, there can be different, many different wrong patterns of our thinking. You consistently begin with yourself and radiate from there. That can be a pattern of wrong thinking that needs to be renewed. Do you consistently begin where? Where, where does your thinking, what does it radiate from? <clears throat> what are your motivations? Like what's going on in your thinking of why you're doing something? These are things to work through. <clears throat> Guys, what motivates you to not read your Bible? Guys, it's not a lack of motivation. It's just that you have old self-motivation for something else. Make sense? It's not that you're just lacking motivation. You've got lots of motivation. It's just the old man ruling your motivation. And he's ruling you for something else. What motivates you to seek righteousness and holiness? What motivates you to live holy lives? Right? Your thinking must be renewed in concerning this matter. Your old reasons for seeking and living holiness was for personal gain and personal glory to gain credit to have honor because of your own production that's old man that's called self-righteousness that's old man how does new man what's the thinking of the new man when it comes to holiness i'll leave that for your house gallon to work through Theologically, guys, the inward renewal of the mind is, again, the work of the Holy Spirit. You can go read Titus 3. He progressively transforms believers into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3. Go read that one. Paul is implying the human mind, guys, hear this clearly. The human mind, apart from divine renewal, is unable to guide or keep us in the way of life that is pleasing to God. Let me repeat that again. Paul's implying that the human mind, apart from divine renewal, is unable to guide or keep us in a way of life that's pleasing to God. So how many days of the week do you spend not seeking renewal of your mind by your most gracious God? Because Paul is saying you desperately need it. Otherwise you will live Always in a way that is not pleasing to God. <clears throat> John Stott said this, If heathen degradation is due to the futility of their minds, then Christian righteousness depends on the constant renewing of our minds. Constant renewing of our minds. As the inner man must be absolute top priority. It's what's best for your kids, it's what's best for your workplace. It's what's best for your work ethic. It's what's best for this church. It's what's best for God's kingdom. Again, your heart and mind, renewed by God, can do way more for the kingdom than your own pitiful efforts. Apart from God. Guys, the contrast with the previous paragraph that Rusty talked about last week couldn't be sharper. The desperate condition of Gentiles outside of Christ is depicted in terms of their being darkened in their understanding so that they are blind to the truth and alienated from God. 
all because of what? The ignorance that's within them. In consequence, they abandon themselves to all kinds of destructive activities. But now, but here, the ongoing transformation of the mind leads to just and holy living which reflects the very character of God Himself. That was the Holy Spirit. He just went. Guys, you will only find renewal of the inner man as your heart and mind discover the truth. Why? Because the one whom you are in, Jesus, that's where all the truth is. And who's the one that renews you? It's Jesus. You see, this is the exact opposite of verse 22. You have wrong desires because of lies. We seek renewal by discovering and believing the truth. So then it's just a simple question of where and how. How do I discover the truth and learn the truth and and so be renewed in my mind by the power of the Spirit and the knowing of the truth and the loving of the truth? How do I do that? The Scriptures. It's pretty simple. The Scriptures. Now listen, prayer. Prayer, right? So you're going to say, but and prayer. All right, well, prayer. Prayer serves largely to align your heart with the what? The truth about God. To align our hearts with the truth concerning God. To live in communion in the truth of God. The body, the church, and her individual gifting serves to do what? To align your heart with the truth about God. To align our minds with the truth about God. Preaching serves to align your heart with the truth about God. The scriptures here are to enlighten, to lead our hearts to the truth about God. I don't know if you know this, but you don't have to wait till Sunday to know more about God. You don't. Like, you can pick up right where we left off in like 20 minutes when we're done. You can have conversations and help each other know the truth about God. You don't have to wait till house gathering or DNA to do that. All right, last point. We must put on the new self. We must put on the new self. Once again, when we were buried with Christ and raised again with Him, God put this new self on us. So it's not in the sense that we're to continue putting on the new man, but that we should conduct our lives in light of the mighty change that God has brought about in putting this new man on us. The new self was created to display the beautiful character of God. Okay, This new self was created. That's what he says right here. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. This new self was created after the likeness of God. The new person is part of the new creation and the life of the age to come. Do you hear that? This is where we're headed. Righteousness and holiness. This new creation is affected by God Himself. It says that He created it. After the likeness of God. 
Again, God's mighty work, not ours. Let me say this, an implication here. To know how to live now, we must then know the new self. To know how we're to live, we have to know what we're living in light of. And I'm saying that's where one of the largest disconnects are. We don't know the truth of the new self, so we don't know how to live now in light of the new self. Our living in light of the new self ends at like things like, well, you know, I shouldn't cuss and shouldn't look at bad things and shouldn't go to R-rated movies and I need to be in church on Sunday and, uh, you know, name it. Name your religious activity and that's what we're supposed to do. I think you'd be hard-pressed. I mean, certainly those are maybe good applications, but... It's much deeper than that. If we're going to put on the new self, then we must know what the new self looks like. We are to become what we are in Christ, and that is the likeness of God. You see that? We are in Christ. Jesus is the exact representation of God. And now we're to become like our new selves. And God is not only the author, but He is the pattern or model of this new creation. We're made in His likeness, created like Him. Because the origin of true holiness and righteousness is only in God. And our new self is patterned after that. And that's what we're to put on. Our conduct is to be consistent with our new position and status in Christ. We are to be righteous as He is. Holy as He is holy. And I think this paired expression of holiness and righteousness explains what it means to be like God. And as I head into concluding, let me say this. This new creation is gladly put on by the believer. This new, this putting on should be gladly embraced. Do you gladly, willfully, joyfully seek putting on the new self? Because if you understood what it was, you would. I'm getting ahead of myself. Many of us have been ingrained, so ingrained with the wrong learning of Jesus. That we seek righteousness out of duty. That we justify our own wrongdoing. Many of us left Jesus at the sinner's prayer. Or the time we walked an aisle. And then you say, like, okay, well, I'm learning how not to do that. Okay, well, look at the measure. Look daily at the measure which you live without seeking the truth that's in Jesus. And that will tell you the measure which you're still trying to relearn Jesus correctly. Don't leave Jesus at the sinner's prayer. As He was good enough to save you from heaven, but for some of us, He isn't good enough for us to live for today. Or maybe He saved you from hell, but now you have to save yourself from a bad life here. No, He saved you from hell, and He saves you from that here. Listen, if we actually understood what it was like to be a new creation made after the likeness of God, what joy there is in holiness, what joy there is in His righteousness, what joy there is in the perfect Creator God of the universe, what glory it brings our deserving Father, 
we would have absolutely no problem throwing off the old man and throwing on the new. We would jump at every side of the old man. We see him, we, whoa, why is he there? And we would want to live out the righteousness that is now ours. That is now imputed to us because of Jesus. I see the destruction that the old man is headed toward. He's headed toward ruin. He and his evil desires, born of lies, the crown that lays upon his head is one of ignorance. He knows not the truth. He knows not the God from whom all truth radiates. And see the beauty of the new man and the display of glory he is headed toward. He is headed toward unending graciousness showered upon us in our inheritance from an almighty God. That's where the new man is headed towards. Which robe do you want to wear? Which, which man do you want to put on? The crown that lays upon the new man's head is one of righteousness and adornment. He knows the truth. He loves the truth. He has discovered and loved the God from whom all truth radiates from. And I would encourage you, church, to throw it off. To throw off death. Look for the old self lurking in the shadows of your life. Open the closet door where you know He resides and you're not willing to go. Seek the renewal of your inner man via the truth found in His Word and the power of the Spirit. And throw on life. Throw on life. Throw on the new self. You are a new creation. Why on earth would we ever exchange the path of righteousness which leads to life in Christ for the path of Adam which leads to death? Throw on the new self. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to throw on the new self. Help us. Father, to throw on the new self. We cannot do this. We cannot do this. We need you to help us live in light of this new self that is now ours. This new self that is now found in the truth that is found in your son Jesus as he radiates the exact representation of our Almighty God. May we put the new man on, throwing off the old man and exchanging our old garments for new ones that are washed whiter than snow. Father, may we see this become a more realized experience in our lives. That we would taste what will be ours for all of eternity in increasing measure this side of eternity. But help us to live this so that our lives would be an ever-increasing display of your glory. Uh, May we glorify you forever in doing so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.